Okay. It's really good to see all of you this morning. Isn't it a glorious day out there in Pennsylvania? Uh, I'm going to open uh, with a word of prayer. We don't really have any announcements right now yet, so let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this beautiful day and this opportunity to come to your house, to meet with your people, and to just learn about you, Lord. I just pray that um, this Bible study today, that we will be able to uh, really dig deeply into your word to learn more about what you have to tell us, that we would learn more about you and your character, and that we would uh, be able to apply your word to our lives. We pray that you be with Carolyn as she speaks. We thank you for the way you've been with her this week as she's been preparing and we just pray that you give her clarity and clear thought. Pray that you would give us receptive hearts. And I pray that in our groups that uh, we would uh, be able to get to know each other as we get to know you better. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, here's Carolyn. <laughs> Good morning. I, I'm delighted to be here with you this morning and to be part of your session in First Samuel. I want you to just imagine with me for a moment this morning that you live in a place where people don't get along, that there's a lot of opinions and controversies going on on all sorts of issues. And it's not just relational turbulence, but you have political strife, you have moral upheaval, you have national unrest, and there are so many people that are clamoring for change. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Do you think that maybe you could turn on CNN or Fox News um, and it would sound all too familiar? Well, the time that I'm actually thinking about is 3,000 years earlier. And if you were here last week, um, you will remember, or let me quickly set the stage for you, that the nation of Israel was struggling both internally and externally. And they were at a leadership crossroads. And at this point, they're not a unified nation under one leader. And we all know that if there's one political leader, then there's no challenges in a country. Well, Israel, they, they haven't quite realized that. And so throughout ancient Israel, there are various clans. And the people are ruled by various judges in each of those ancient tribes. However, the people are convinced that what they need is a king that can unify the nation and that, they can, that will bring then strength to the nation of Israel. And so in the book of Samuel, we read about the establishment of that king. And it's a book where we learn something about the mighty and the powerful, but I would also say we learn a lot about ourselves in the book of Samuel as well. So today we're going to be considering the first three chapters of Samuel. So hold on, we're gonna talk fast as we go through these, but we're gonna go through three chapters. And in these chapters, we're going to learn some important lessons that we can actually incorporate into our own lives because there are lessons that are taught here about regular people. Um, so if you want to take out your notebooks, if you have those and turn to page 21, there's a, a page there for you to take notes um, if you'd like to do that as we begin with these first three chapters. And the heading actually in your study guide is for this chapter is Opposing the Proud 
exalting the humble. And I think you'll see why as we make our way through these chapters that it's entitled that. But we're not going to be looking at just principles, but we're also going to be looking at real life experiences of some very real people as we go through this. So early on in the story, we're introduced to a woman and her name is Hannah. And through her, we're going to learn about, this is the first point, enduring hurt. Enduring hurt. So if you take your Bibles and you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 1, and this is what we read. There was a certain man from Ramatham, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elhehu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Now in the Hebrew Bible, Judges is the book that immediately comes before Samuel. And it ends, the book of Judges, with these poignant words. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Now, if you ever had a toddler, you understand those verses very well. But here we have an example of someone doing what was right in his own eyes. Elkanah rebelled from God's plan of marriage, and he took two wives. And things didn't go very well for him. There was bitterness. There was jealousy. There was strife in his home. So look at verse 3. Year after year, this man, Elkanah, went up from his town to worship and to sacrifice the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Now, I encourage you to take advantage of that map in the back of your study guide. So if you turn to the very back of your study guide, you're going to find a map of Israel. And if you find Raman, which is just above Jerusalem, we're just going to kind of get ourselves located for where this is taking place. Raman is located about five miles north of Jerusalem. And then once you find that, if you go a little further north, you're going to find the town of Shiloh. And Shiloh is located about 30 miles north of Jerusalem, so it's just a little further north. And Shiloh is where the temple is that Elkanah and Hannah are traveling to for their annual sacrifice, and that's where this is taking place at. So just to kind of give you an, an idea, um, Raman is where they live, and they're traveling to Shiloh just north there of Jerusalem, both places. Now, part of the animal sacrifice that takes place when they go to Shiloh is used certainly as an offering to the Lord, but then some of it is, is used for a communal meal with the worshipers. And that's where we read and where we pick up in verse 4 when we read, Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina, and to all of her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and she would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, 
Why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? So we're, we're told in this passage that Hannah has no children, and in this culture, children determine your standing in society. Because if we think back, this was an agrarian society, so the more sons you had, the more workers you had. The more workers you had, the more crop yields. The greater the crop yields, the greater the income. The greater the income, your higher your social status. Hannah also lived in an age before there was social security and 401ks, so your children were your retirement plan in old age. So in this ancient culture, women who bore a lot of children were treated with a great deal of honor and respect. However, in a culture that puts all of a woman's significance and security in her children to not have kids mean that she was left with hopelessness and shame. And that's where we find Hannah. She's undoubtedly has an enduring, significant hurt as we find her. Now, Elkanah, her husband, he does show sympathy and empathy toward Hannah in his own way. In fact, we're told that he loves Hannah, and he gives her a double portion during this communal meal. And Hannah was most likely his first wife. And the reason that he marries Penina is simply to bear children because Hannah wasn't able to. And his favoritism toward Hannah is evident, and this fuels Penina's jealousy. Couldn't see that one coming, could you? <laughs> now, Penina isn't helping matters any because she's using her children as a leverage against Hannah and to torment and to belittle Hannah year after year, we're told. She reminds Hannah of how little value she has because she doesn't have children. But think about it. Why, why does she do that? Because I would suggest Penina sees her security and her significance in the form of bearing children, and that takes pride, and that's where the pride comes in. So, unable to bear this ridicule any longer of Penina, we read Hannah, weeping and unable to eat, stood up in verse 9. Now, this action is a, a subtle turning point in our story. It isn't just travelogue to say, Hannah stood up and sauntered into another room. Rather, if we understand the Hebrew word for stood up, it indicates a decisive action. Hannah stood up, resolved to make a change. That's something, there was a choice that had to be made, so something had to change. And it's that change that's going to bring Hannah to the place of finding hope. And that's our second point, finding hope. And we get a glimpse of this change and this hope in the vow that Hannah speaks in the midst of her grief and anguish. It's, it's fervent, it's honest, and it's humble. You start to see her heart here. And the remarkable thing is her hurt doesn't draw her away from God, but it draws her close to God. Her hurt doesn't draw her away from God. It drove her to God. Look at verse 11. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you only look on my servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, and I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. 
Hannah's faith here is remarkable because she addresses her vow to the Lord Almighty. She recognizes that God, his universal rule, encompasses every force, heavenly, earthly, cosmic, everything. There's literally no one else that she can go to. There's nowhere else she can go. There is only God Almighty. And she recognizes that he cares for her. And so she turns to him. Every fiber of her being wanted motherhood. And should the Lord grant this, she said, I will give the child back to God. And she vowed to give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And she included the no razor part would touch his head. I think we need to understand that this was a feature of a Nazarite vow, which is basically saying her child would be the Lord's for the entirety of his life. She wasn't vowing to give him back for just a portion, but for the entirety of his life. And if you recall in scripture, we have a couple of other men who have the Nazarite vow, one being Samson and one being John the Baptist. So in verse 12, we see, as she kept praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. It's interesting here, Eli is Israel's spiritual leader. He's the chief priest. And he misinterprets the entire thing that's going on here. He accuses Hannah of being drunk and instead of seeing a woman who's lost in sorrow and really deep in prayer, totally engaged in prayer. Nonetheless, Hannah addresses him very respectfully in verse 15. She says, not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman who's deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take a servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went away, and she ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Now, Hannah didn't know what God was going to do with her petition. She didn't know whether he was going to grant it. But she emerges from this temple a very different person than when she walked in. She cast all of her care upon the Lord, and she made a choice to rest in his purposes. And we find that her spirits are lifted when she leaves that place. I think one of the hardest things in a Christian life is the non-fulfillment of good desires. It's so hard because Hannah is praying for a good thing. She's not praying for a neighbor's incessant barking dog to be run over by a car. She's praying for a very good thing. Children are a blessing from the Lord. And she pours out her heart year after year, but she doesn't see that fulfillment of a good desire. And maybe you've been there. Maybe you've prayed for good things. Maybe like Hannah, for a child, or a spouse, or a strong marriage, or financial stability, or better health. Those are all good things. So why hasn't God answered? Well, I think it's challenging for us, and we need to take a step back and acknowledge who God is. 
and then rest in his wisdom. When he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, as heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God is good, and he always responds in our, to our best interest, even though we don't, we don't understand those at the time. I once read a quote on prayer that I found to be pretty telling in perspective, and it was this. In prayer, God gives us what we ask, or he gives us what we would have asked if we knew everything he knows. God gives us what we ask, or he gives us what we would have asked if he knows everything we know, or if we knew everything he knows. So what do we do when our prayerful desires aren't fulfilled? And the scriptures tell us to persevere, just like Hannah. It doesn't promise that our outcomes will come to pass, but it does promise the best outcome will result. Now in Hannah's case, it wasn't on her timetable, but the Lord does provide a child. In verse 20, we read, So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and she called him Samuel, saying, Because I have asked the Lord for him. Now you might say, well, it's easy for Hannah to bless the Lord because God gave her what she wanted. She prayed, she got pregnant, she praises. We can all have that perspective, except that wasn't the order of Hannah's petition. What we see happen is that Hannah prays, she's joyful and praises, and then she gets pregnant. Her praise for the sovereign Lord was the same regardless of the, income, uh, of the outcome, whether pregnant or not. But now, with baby Samuel on the scene, we see that Elkanah, the dad goes to Shiloh for the annual worship, but Hannah doesn't go. So in that culture, women would generally nurse a child for three years, which is what kept her at home and from making those trips. And so she was no doubt enjoying being a mom and watching Samuel grow, seeing his first steps, hearing his first words, reading Goodnight Moon and Yertle the Turtle, or maybe it was Ramble the Camel, you know, in those, in those days. Whatever it was, you can be confident that she was enjoying her time and totally enthralled with her precious little boy. So it makes me wonder, did she ever consider backing away from that vow to dedicate Samuel? And as that time approached to dedicate him to the Lord's service, we see beginning in verse 24, we're going to get that answer. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, Pardon me, Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I ask of him. So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life, and he will be given over to the Lord. And he, referring to Samuel, worshipped the Lord there. This was an extravagant offering of praise that they brought. 
um, Elkanah and Hannah, it was almost three times what is normally offered. So we see that Hannah, for her, there was absolutely no grudging compliance, no turning back, no compromising on her vow. Um, Jeff and I just recently became grandparents for the first time, and we have a little granddaughter, Mila Kate, who's six months old. And we just can't get enough of her. Um, my daughter and her husband live in Columbus, Ohio, so daily I text and ask for a Mila pic and get a pic or a video, and sometimes we'll FaceTime her. Now she can't talk yet, but um, we'd love to hear her laugh and giggle and, and hear her chatter. And it's hard to fathom Hannah's emotions as she thinks of leaving her little boy in the care of Eli and whatever negative influences are going on there. And spoiler alert, there's a lot of negative influences going on there. And in all honesty, this passage has troubled me as a mom and as a grandma because I think, why would God require Hannah to leave her son there at that temple, especially after all she had endured and all the hurt that she had endured waiting so long for the child? But, you know, as I grappled with this passage, I have come to realize that Hannah was placing the entirety of her hope into a known God. Hannah has seen firsthand that God can be trusted in the midst of her deepest and most challenging circumstances of life. So once Hannah took that three-year-old son to the temple, she didn't know the details of what God had in store for him. She hadn't received a vision. She hadn't had an angelic visit. But she knew her God. And she trusted him implicitly for his watch and his care over her son. So we're told Samuel grows and has great faith himself as a prophet of God. But let's remember, he saw that faith lived out through his mother. And she taught him not only through her words, but through her example, through her obedient action of giving him back to the Lord. So here's a challenge to my own heart. And to you, what do your children, grandchildren, and others see in you during difficult times? Do they observe you having a steadfast and unshakable trust in a known God? Hannah's unwavering faith and trust is clearly laid out as, as we move into chapter 2, and we're going to see that very implicitly, where we see her three giving praise. So that's our third point, giving praise. What a, a radical transformation has occurred from Hannah, from when we saw her in chapter 1 to where now we see her in chapter 2. And I, I kind of feel like I, I've snuck into a worship service and I'm, I'm eavesdropping on Hannah's uh, praise. But, you know, I'm okay with that. Because we read her heart is overflowing with a song of praise in chapter 2, verse 1. Then Hannah pray and prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn, meaning strength, is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. Hannah begins to recount here the character of the God that she knows, the God that she knows so well. And it starts in verse 1, and then it just keeps flowing throughout all of chapter 2. 
So if you'll turn in your workbooks, if you will, to page 20, um, there's a, an outline of the whole chapter there of Hannah's prayer on page 20. And I would just ask that you follow along because I'm quickly just going to go through some of the attributes of God that Hannah points out in this prayer that I have found here. And I think as you work through your study, you probably have found other ones. But let me just quickly go through the ones that, that I found. In verse 2, we see that God does not change. He is a rock. God is a stable foundation for our hope. In verse 3, God is omniscient. He knows everything. God's knowledge gives us comfort because he sees every plot that's being hatched in the darkness against us, but he knows how to deal with it. We are never left alone. Verse 4, this introduces the theme of reversals, and it's going to actually continue from 4 to verse 10, where Hannah recognizes that God exalts the humble, and he brings down the self-reliant or the proud. And in verse 5, God knows what we need. It's interesting when we read, the barren has borne seven children, now, we know that, San, that Hannah had Samuel, and later we read that the Lord blessed her with three additional boys and two girls, two daughters, which is six, so why seven? Well, it could be that if you had six kids, it kind of seems like seven, but um, I'm not sure that that's what Scripture would um, put behind it, but I would say that Scripture says that seven is a number of completion. And Hannah's home was now completely blessed by the Lord. So it's metaphoric. Verse 6, we see where God has power over death. Hannah had a womb that could have been described as being dead, but God created life for her in it. Verse 8, God is omnipotent. He's the creator. He holds all power. Verse 9, God is our refuge and safety. Verse 10, God is almighty. He's all-powerful, and all who stand against him will be defeated. And with that song of praise, the annual pilgrimage for, to Shiloh for Hannah and Elkanah has come to an end, and it's time to leave Samuel. And this kind of gives me a flashback of the times of dropping our girls off at college. And it makes me wonder if there were tears that were shed as they left Shiloh. And we read in verse 11, Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy Samuel ministered with the, before the Lord under Eli the priest. And then we move on and we get a glimpse of what's happening in Shiloh into the life of Eli and his sons, and it isn't, it isn't good. The pa this passage, as we go into, is going to be like watching a tennis match, if you will. It's going to go back and forth, um, because we're going to clearly see the contrast as God opposes the proud in Eli and his sons, and he exalts the humble in Samuel. And we're going to see those who are opposing God um, in, our fourth, in, the, in our fourth point, is going to be facing justice for those who, who oppose God. 
So our fourth point is facing justice. And we look at that in chapter 2, verses 12 through 36. Now remember, the setting is during the period of the judges where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And the gravity of this is immediately seen as we're introduced to Eli's family in verse 12. Eli's son, Hophni and Phinehas, were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. We're told straight away that Eli's sons are corrupt. They're wicked men. They do not even know the Lord, we're told. And they're the priest. This is a problem. We see that the spiritual leaders of Israel are embodying arrogance and sin. And what makes these men scoundrels is that they're sinning liturgically in terms of worship issues, and they're sinning morally in terms of sexual purity. So in worship, the priests were responsible for sacrificing the choice cuts of meat to the Lord, and then the remaining meat could be eaten by the worshipers and the priest. However, Hophni and Phinehas claimed the choice meat for themselves prior to even giving it to the Lord, offering it as a burnt sacrifice. And in verse 17, we're told, this sin of the young men, referring to Hophni and Phinehas, was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offerings with contempt. Now we volley to the other side, and we see a stark contrast as we read in verse 18, but Samuel was ministering before the Lord. And then on a little personal aside, in verse 19, we read, each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer sacrifices. Can you imagine Hannah's anticipation as she would make that annual trip to the temple to see Samuel? And then with that abounding thankfulness that she would see him serving in the presence of the Lord and how grateful she would be? Verse 20 and 21, we read this. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, saying, May the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home. And the Lord was gracious to Hannah, and she gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. And with that, we volley back to the other side, and we see in contrast the house of Eli. And not, now, not only were the sons sinning in worship, but they're also sinning morally, particularly with sexual sins. Because at the temple, there were women who would assist with the tasks that took place at the temple. And we read that the priests are taking advantage of them in that very place, in that very place where holiness should abound, we see where sin is rampant. And although Eli does confront his sons about their actions, it's lacking teeth. It's pretty weak. He says, verse 24, it is not a good report that I hear about you. When maybe he should be saying, you are spiritual leaders. You are the priest of Israel, and you're sinning in terrible ways. Stop it. You're done. You're fired. But it looks like family ties have weakened his response. And, with, and instead of giving absolute faithfulness to God, that's not his primary concern. He's concerned about his family ties. 
So Eli gives his sons a half-hearted warning, but Hophni and Phinehas, they don't listen. And can I add here, be, be careful when you water down the significance of issues or consequences for your kids or other family out of the desire to take it easy on them because the lack of accountability is likely leading them to a worse place, not a better place. So we read that a man of God comes to Eli, telling him this about his family, saying that his family was chosen to be priest of the Lord forever, but you have held this in contempt. Therefore, your family line will be put out of the priesthood. In verse 30, it says, those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me will be disdained. In other words, God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. Then Eli is told the future concerning his sons. <clears throat> In verse 33 and 34, we read this. And what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will be assigned to you. They will both die on the same day. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house, and they will minister before my anointed one always. And we see in 1 Samuel 4, here's a spoiler alert, Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, they do all die. And we see that this prophecy is going to be fulfilled. And in their place, God will raise up another, and this brings us to our final point, which is all about five. Our fifth point is hearing God's voice, hearing God's voice. The stage is set in chapter 3, and it begins in verse 1. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare, and there were not many visions. Now, up to this point, we have not heard a lot about Samuel's time in Shiloh. The few glimpses we get, it all kind of reveals the same thing to us, that he's a man of character who ministered faithfully. We're told he's growing in stature and in the favor with God and men. Does that sound familiar to you? Growing in the stature and in favor with God and men. If it sounds familiar, it's because that's the way that Jesus himself is described in Luke 5 or in Luke 2, 52. But the verse also reflects the poor condition of the priesthood in those days because no one was bringing a word from the Lord. Because remember, the priests, they didn't know the Lord. Therefore, they weren't hearing his voice. So nonetheless, God does speak. But in this case, he does not speak to the mature priest. He comes to a servant boy, a temple servant. And Samuel is the one who is listening, and as a result, he becomes the Lord's voice to the people, the prophet. So we're in the wee hours of the morning, and Samuel's sleeping in the temple, and we are told in verses, beginning in verse 4, then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel, Samuel answered, here I am, and he ran to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. But Eli said, I did not call, go back and lie down. So he went and he lay down, and again the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up, and he went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. My son, Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not know yet that the Lord, the word of the Lord, had not yet been revealed to him. 
This is saying that Samuel was not cognizant that the Lord could communicate with men in a supernatural form. Therefore, it never occurred to him that such a thing like this could happen. And unfortunately, Eli, even as a high priest, didn't do much better. Due to his deficit spiritual state, he did not hear from God or, or recognize his call. And actually, this would be pretty comical if it was not so sad that it took three tries before Eli realizes that the Lord was calling Samuel. So in verse 9, Eli told Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls again, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went, and he lay down in his place, and the Lord came to him and stood there calling as the other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. Have you ever been in a restaurant or in a, at a concert with a family or a friend and it's really loud and noisy and you have somebody sitting across from you, but yet you're able to hear that person and you can carry on a full conversation? Or I recall the time when I was at a park with a lot of, there were a lot of other kids and moms and it was very loud and I was in a conversation, but I heard my daughter call my name and I immediately turned around and saw her hanging precariously from the slide. So why is it that we can hear those voices at that time? Well, in both of those situations, we were able to screen out all the other noises because there was one that we wanted to hear. And in one word, I think we heard that voice because we had a focus on that voice. We give our attention to the voice that is most important to us, and it blocks out the other distractions. Even amidst the other distractions, we can still hear that voice. And there is a God who speaks to us today. And it's true there are many distractions and opinions and arguments about all sorts of things, but the clear and powerful word of God can cut through all the noise and clutter if we're listening to it. The Lord desires to speak to your heart and to mine if we will hear his message to us as we approach him as Samuel does and say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. The message that God actually delivers to Samuel here is a devastating one. In verse 12 through 13, we read, At that time I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end, for I told him that I would judge his family <clears throat> forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God, and he failed to restrain them. Now God is validating Samuel's role as a prophet in having him deliver the message. <clears throat> However, if you think of Samuel having to tell his mentor, his adoptive father of sorts, that God's punishment is coming on him and his family. But look at verse 17 and 18. What was it he, referring to God, said to you, Eli asked? Do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. Then Eli said, He is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. Perhaps for the first time, Eli really understood God and his ways. 
Eli. Eli may have been a weak father, but he did not try to bargain with God or make excuses. He recognized God's justice. And what I love next is that we're actually given a summary, kind of the, the end of the story, if you will, with Samuel and what, what's going, what would happen to him. Look at verse 19. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up. So we see that Hannah's trust was in the well-placed. And the Lord let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. The accuracy of Samuel's ongoing words convinced all of Israel that he was indeed a genuine prophet of the Lord. And as a prophet, what qualifies Samuel to speak for the Lord? Well, it's actually pretty simple. Samuel has the right to speak for God because he's listened to God. He can speak for God because he's listened to God. And Samuel went on, and he became one of the greatest prophets of Israel. So in the end, Samuel and his mother Hannah are exalted, while the proud and self-sufficient seen in Penina in Eli's family are brought low. And I think there's a message for all of us in these chapters. There are two ways to try and establish your security and your happiness. One is through pride and self-reliance. And maybe that comes through your family, your job, your talent, your money. But we're told that ultimately, the proud will be broken and brought down. The second way is in humble obedience, leaning into God and recognizing that he alone is a source of your security and happiness. In humility, as we entrust our lives to God and in his timing, we will find purpose and meaning that we'll never be able to find anywhere else. So let us choose the humble way. And in it, we will walk with joy. We will walk with God. And that is how we will find our joy. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you will help us to recognize how great and mighty you truly are and how deeply you care for each one of us. May we always be listening and focused on hearing your voice amongst all the other noises that continually go on around us so that we will walk in humble obedience before you. Go with us as we leave from this place to have further discussions and would you be guiding our words and our thoughts during those times. We ask all of this in your name.